I'm David Pluff. And I'm Steve Schmidt. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. I hope everyone had a safe, socially distanced Thanksgiving. I know I'm thankful that we're rounding the corner on the worst presidency in American history. This week, we're going to break the format and answer some of your questions. David, are you ready to go? Steve, I am more ready to go. I think we got some great questions folks have sent in on Twitter, and we're going to get to as many of them as we can. And Steve, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. So let's get into it. Okay, our first question comes from at S2000 underscore Moose. Steve, you are the new United States Attorney General, Doug Jones. Your first WebEx on your first day is with the Southern District of New York. They transmit a link saying, this is what we have been sitting on. The package includes money laundering, bribery, and potential other indictments. Do you give them the okay to pursue? Great question. And so on the one hand, what we don't want to see is the spirit of lock her up, lock him up, lock anyone up in this country over politics. And Trump mainstreamed that. It's part of the undemocratic sentiment that has fully taken over the Republican Party. That being said, we're a nation of laws. The rule of law must be supreme. And the level of conduct we're talking about that I've seen and we've all seen with our own eyes, if there's criminal inquiries that stem from that, part of me says, so be it. There shouldn't be any politics involved in the situation at all. It should be about application of the law. But I'll I'll say this. I, I truly, I don't know what the right answer is. I think that this is a monumental month, a hinge in the history of our country that will define the rest of our political lives. And we've talked a lot about it on this show over the last couple of weeks, but I'm starting to come around to this point of view, which is that Joe Biden was decisively elected president of the United States, 306 electoral college votes and more than 6 million popular votes, majority, decisive victory. But it's also the month where American democracy was poisoned. And it was poisoned purposefully in a devastating way. We have 80% of the country thinks the election was illegitimate, that have completely opted into a fantasy world. And so as we ponder this month, and this is a coup, I mean, we should should call it what it is. It's It's reckless. It's incompetently done. But what if it's not next time? We have to be incredibly restrained and judicious in anything that has to do with the application of criminal charges to people that we're in a, frankly, a life and death for democracy political fight with for the rest of our days. Yeah, I think those are smart thoughts, Steve, of course. I think we need to be cautious. I think that anything that appears to be a vendetta or, you know, playing their game, I think is wrong. But there's no doubt that whether it is acts in government, outside of government, they're tangled and messy and quite likely illegal financial picture in the Trump organization. Like, I do think you can't take a dive. Like, this is not Jerry Ford pardoning Richard Nixon, right? On the other hand, I think you need to be careful about it. So I think your most important point about the poisoning of our democracy is right. And I think that poison does not get removed. We don't have the anti-venom for it. It's going to be there uh, and going to be sorely tested over the next couple election cycles. Okay. Uh, At Dictionary Deb, first, thank you both. 
You guys are invaluable in helping political neophytes understand the landscape, which is complicated and quite frankly terrifying a lot of the time. Question, how scared should we be of this attempted coup? I'm nauseous every day. Well, Dictionary Deb, I can be nauseous as well. Now, I don't think we should worry at all about whether Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States. He's going to be. But it is still uh, nauseating, infuriating, and scary to see a sitting United States president and most of their political party go along with an attempted coup. This is an attempt to turn a democracy into an autocracy. We shouldn't kid around about that. This isn't just Trump throwing spaghetti at the wall and trying to win the Fox News evening programming cycle. They are trying to invalidate election results of an election that wasn't close. They have no case. So now they're trying to convince Republican state legislators who don't have any legal pathway to do this to basically say the election doesn't matter. And we give all our electoral votes to Donald Trump. We saw the two Michigan legislators getting summoned to the White House. And actually, they showed more strength, I think, so far anyway, than almost all the Republicans in Congress, because they said the election results will stand. So I think we should be scared about this. You know, and Steve and I have talked about this for 2022, for 2024, 2026. There's more Republicans than not, particularly those who think they might run for president, who believe Trumpism is the way forward. You know, maybe they'll clean it up a little bit. And so something dangerous has been unleashed here. It's a toxin. And our country does not work. It just doesn't work. Our democracy doesn't work. We might as well cease to exist if we have most of the one of our two political parties not believing in free and fair elections. That means the concept of self-governance is destroyed. And our democracy requires the loser of elections to acknowledge that loss. And that has been our history throughout time. And so I actually, I'm not nauseous about, you know, is this going to affect somehow Joe Biden becoming president at noon Eastern time, January 20th? I'm nauseous about the fact that the entire enterprise to me is much, much weaker than it's ever been. Yeah, it sure is. Um, I think that this is the most terrifying month in American history. And I don't say that without hyperbole. The story of this country, the radical departure that it represents in time and history, the idea that there could be a republic that would endure, that was founded on the rule of law, that was predicated on the absolutely radical idea that the people could be sovereign and that the people could govern themselves. And the whole story of the country has been about who gets to participate in that idea. That's what the fight's been about. From the earliest days of the country, there was disputation and disagreement about slavery. And so we fought a civil war in this country that remains per capita one of the bloodiest in history to remedy that original sin. And we spent the next hundred years living in a segregated, deeply divided country. Martin Luther King came to the Lincoln Memorial under the American flag to collect a promissory note. And we've come to the place at long last, or so we thought, that basically everybody's included in this idea now. We've had a black president. 
We have a woman vice president now. We have a woman nominee for president. Women got the right to vote 100 years ago. Now we see a systematic effort to disenfranchise millions of black votes for the purposes of altering the outcome of an election to sustain and power the person who lost. And we see seditious efforts to be able to do that. But we see this effort taking place that's no longer a fight about who gets to be included. It's a fight about whether we're going to be a free country anymore where the people are sovereign. Because if we don't decide who wins the elections, who does? What happens when preservation of the idea and the ideal yields to a lust for the permanency of power. And that's the moment we stand at, the breaching of faith. When elected officials to the Congress take an oath, they swear to preserve and protect the Constitution from all enemies, foreign and domestic. The Republicans in the Congress have done in weeks, but 244 years could not. What they've managed to do is to break the faith of the American people in the American system of government. In the 11th month of the year 2020, in the 244th year of the independence of the United States of America, that's what they did this month. And no matter how successful Joe Biden is, this fight now defines us as a people in it and as a country. I just want to say something, right? It was 24 hours after the election where there were some attacks from the left on a group that I was involved in, the Lincoln Project. What the attacks basically said were two things. Sit down and shut up. You don't have a place at our table because you used to be a Republican. You don't get a voice. And they discounted millions of people who were part of a coalition because they didn't share a belief in a bunch of issues. Mm-hmm. Here's the deal. There's only one party in this country that supports American democracy anymore. For me, grown-up pragmatic politics means that I'll be in the rest of my life that I'm involved in politics in a coalition partnership with this party. Try to support, help it win do what I can. The accommodation that I have to make in people who believe in things that I believe in is that that party's going to govern further to the left as the price of maintaining democracy. Okay, I'm fine with that. But the coalition that sustained Joe Biden, it's not big enough to win unless we're all in it together. And that means learning how to disagree agreeably with people in a really broad coalition that is the last American line of defense against America's first autocracy. And that fight is going to define our politics for the next 25 years because of what happened in this month of November of 2020 to the everlasting shame of the people who perpetrated it and broke faith with the American story. I agree with you. We have to understand the coalition tax cuts are important and healthcare is important and climate change is existential. I'm not diminishing any of that. No, of course. 
But ultimately, the big fight is the fight for saving this democracy. And I'm sure you feel the same way I do. The fact that we are saying those words, that the entire enterprise, our form of government is on the line. When Donald Trump leaves, you know, is something I never, words I never thought we'd utter. So it's a scary time. And I agree. We're going to have to have a boat that's big enough for everybody and understand that whatever our disagreements on a particular issue, you know, we're all freedom fighters to save this country and this way of government, this form of self-governance. It's pretty frightening. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back to take more of your questions about the transition, politics. And of course, we're also going to talk a little bit about the good old state of Delaware. Welcome back to Battleground. TPC Black 65 asks, it took Germany approximately 10 years for the denazification to take hold. How long will it take for the detrumpification to happen? And will we survive until then? Well, look, I think that um, you should understand there's only two ways to win a fight. Only two. You can win a fight through submission or through exhaustion. And if you think about Germany and Japan, that's what submission looks like. If you think about what happened in the Vietnam War, that's what exhaustion looks like. This fight will be decided in the end by exhaustion if Trump is to win or by submission if democracy is to win. So the great danger is that we become exhausted in this fight by the excesses, by the craziness, by the insanity, and become apathetic. By the way, anybody who says to any other person, you know, who's part of the Biden coalition, right, go sit down, shut up, you don't have a seat at the table. What they need to understand is that there is a party that is saying as its core message, if you don't have a seat at the table, if you're disenfranchised, if you're on life's margins, Trust in the great leader. Come here. You belong here with us against those people who were screwing you, telling you to shut up, telling you to be quiet, telling you you don't belong, telling you that there's a new America where you don't get a voice. We have to deny oxygen to that over time. But it's going to be a long, long, long fight in this country over our direction. We won the first battle in this, but we need to understand that since Joe Biden won, something truly terrible has happened in this country. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, the question by TPC Black 65, how long will it take for de-Trumpification to happen? I think it's an open question. We don't know if it will. It hasn't started. Right. Hasn't been defeated. All right, Steve, you want to take the next one? At Lisa underscore Galvin. We all know how important the runoff Senate contests in Georgia are. Dems across the country want to help. But are you concerned that too much involvement from outside groups will hurt Democratic candidates? Listen, there's going to be so much money on both sides that at the end of the day, I don't think one ad is going to make the difference. And I think, you know, if Democrats lose this race, it's not going to be because of money. The Republicans have already booked, I think, close to $100 million worth of television, which is an extraordinary amount. In politics, it's all less about what your opponent has. It's do I have what I need to win? And, and I think that Warnock and Ossoff will have what they need. But but if you want to help, you should, because our task here is hard. I, I think that um, we saw Georgia was very close. Biden outperformed most Democrats in Georgia. So some of that was because of Joe Biden. Some of it was because of Donald Trump. 
I do think the turnout message on the Republican side, which will be they stole the White House, don't let them steal the Senate. And then I think there'll be a message to swing voters, which will be tricky, by the way, since Trump has not acknowledged the results, but will be, listen, you need a check on Biden. You can't give him a Democratic Senate. You know, that might be effective in some of those suburban areas outside Atlanta with some voters. But here's the thing. The Democrats have the numbers to win. Almost won the governor's race in 18, would have without voter suppression, won the presidency in 2020. I do think it's harder for Democrats historically in a runoff, particularly post an election where they had some success, because we really build that success usually on first time voters, voters that haven't voted a lot in the past, newcomers to politics who organize and to ask people to then get off the mat and go right at it. Sometimes it's difficult. But my sense right now is there's a tremendous amount of intensity both in Georgia and around the country around these races. I do think we're going to be able to create pretty good Democratic turnout. I would consider the Republicans a slight favorite in both of these races. But, you know, my sense is both of these races are going to be decided by a couple of points. So, you know, yes, when I used to run campaigns, sometimes when outside groups would come in and drop ads, they could be harmful. The first rule of any involvement from an outside group in a political campaign is do no harm. But I think there are groups. The Lincoln Project's a great example. When you look at what happened in 2020, just a few weeks ago, you know, Joe Biden's gains in suburban areas, even some exurban areas, blue collar areas um, were tremendous. And, you know, you can't just look at exit polls and say what percentage of Republicans voted for Joe Biden in a state. You know, if it was nine instead of eight, that's huge. But so many independents really, for the most part, are either Republican or Democrat. They identify as independent, but they vote religiously with both parties. And I think, you know, Joe Biden's campaign, groups like the Lincoln Project did a really good job of talking to those types of voters. And, you know, that's why Joe Biden's president. I'd say this about the Georgia race, too, just about like how I think people should think about it. We definitely should not think about it as the last race to be decided from the 2020 election. We should think about it as the first race that matters after the election and after the poisoning of American democracy. And so the questions that we were talking about before, right, like what's going to happen? People have to care. They have to care to participate. And it means everybody. So the numbers are there. Is the interest there? What side is more exhausted, right? What side wants it more? And what's at stake is enormous for all of the reasons we've talked about in the preceding couple of minutes. But let's just like look at these senators. And I I do think, I don't know what your view of this is, David, but I think the chances are extremely small that there's a split decision, right? Where you get one Republican, one Democratic, candidate over the line. I think that two R's are going or two D's are going. I think they're a team. Our friend Matthew Dowd, I thought, had a great idea. He thought that Warnock and Ossoff should challenge each other to a debate. They should travel around the state debating which of their opponents is more corrupt and out of touch. (laughs) It's a great idea. Which would be like an amazing conversation. I mean, so like, let's just like look at about the possibility of the upgrade in the main line of attack. So the main line of attack, right, is that radical socialists are about to take over the U.S. Senate and, you know, it's Ossoff and Warnock are are the vehicles to do that. You know, of course, the radical party, I would argue, is the one that wants to get rid of American democracy and the idea that winners of elections should be the people in political power in the country. Putting that aside for a second, imagine this Kelly Loeffler, who 
it's a long list, but like I, she's definitely, if there were Academy Awards up there for worst and most corrupt, right? She's in the running. So this is an appointed senator. Imagine the honor. You're appointed to the United States Senate. And by the way, well, how, how do you get there? Oh, you got a really wealthy husband. It's worth $500 million, runs the American Stock Exchange, and you're a big time donor. Okay, so you're, you're in the Senate, with $500 million. What's the first thing you do when you're confronted with a real crisis? Life and death, global pandemic. You're sitting in the meeting. You've just been told it's going to kill a lot of people. What do you do? You walk out of the fucking room and trade your stocks? You short your pharmaceutical stocks? Are you kidding me? $500 million net worth? And there's some sort of argument to be made that she's a better choice? <laughs> Holy shit. Um, and Purdue, imagine the arrogance that you don't owe voters an explanation. Hey, you should debate. Fuck you. No. <laughs> right. And so then you understand yeah. the step right to the next undemocratic embrace. So, yeah, of course, why would he want to debate an opponent when you're in the middle of an effort alleging conspiracy theories poisoning American democracy? That's what's on the ballot. And we'll talk about the issues and we'll talk about all of those things. But this is a first big test and we should understand, right? Like it's there shouldn't be any BS because it's a new age, right? It's a new day, right? We shouldn't be like it's a Republican right. state, is it? It's a purple state. And one side's going to win. It's the Democratic side, and by that I mean in favor of democracy, or it's the corrupt autocratic side, because this Loeffler in Purdue would absolutely be right at home in the Ukrainian parliament. Like total fucking criminals, both of them. <laughs> yeah, they really are. They are from central casting in terms of, you know, building a compelling political argument against them. We're going to take a moment to pay some bills, stick around, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Battleground. At Endeavor Forever 2, I live in New Mexico. I have no idea what Scrapple is, but can green chilies be added to it? Because out here, that can be a culinary maker or breaker. Hashtag Delaware cuisine. It's not just for Delawareans anymore, which is certainly true. Well, if you have not had the pleasure of Scrapple, you need to get on it. Now, could you add green chilies to it? I mean, my view is you can add anything to Scrapple. Let's remind everybody what Scrapple is. It's the stuff that's not even good enough for hot dogs. It's the scraps that are left when you've already made the hot dog. So it's just pork scraps and trimmings. You know, sometimes you can throw a little cornmeal or wheat flour in there, and it basically you make a brick. It's a thin brick that generally you have breakfast. It's best with like runny eggs and burnt toast. You can even like put it on bread and add the eggs to it. It is spicy usually, so this is where green chilies could be awesome. My mother's family was from southern Delaware, which is very southern, and scrapple was just something you had anytime you had breakfast at like my grandfather's house. This became a staple of mine growing up. We'd have scrapple and runny eggs, and it was awesome. It's kind of hard, and it's spicy. You know, Delaware is not known for its cuisine, uh, like Maryland, blue crabs. So best, uh, I think, blue crabs or, or crabs. I'm on the Pacific coast now. I much prefer mid-Atlantic blue crabs to Dungeness crabs. Mm. The bobby, 
you know, maybe other places in the country have the Bobby, but Capriati's and Casapula's two awesome sub shops. That the, the Bobby is basically Thanksgiving dinner on a sub. Okay, it's turkey, it's stuffing, mayo, it's cranberry sauce, delicious, uh, and mm-hmm. it mayo. It's incredible, man. It's incredible. But for me, uh, Scrapple is um, you can't get it. I can't get it out here. Maybe I should order it to be flown uh, across the country because I miss it. But uh, you know. You could, you know, throw your leftover gravy, warm it up in the microwave and throw it on the Scrapple. I mean, you can basically do anything with Scrapple. It's an incredible, it's an incredible food for sure. Um, I would say this. I think the Capriati's, it's still, I think it's the best sandwich I've ever had. Is that right? And Steve, my guess is you've had some good sandwiches through the years too. (laughs) (laughs) I've had some, I've had some good sandwiches, right? You know, you can get into some chicken parm, veal parms on the Jersey Shore in New Jersey. Generally, great subs. But, I, you know, the Bobby Capriati's is right up there in, in terms of world's great foods, great sub shops. Scrapple, probably be storming the country. Definitely good for you. Healthy. Um, locale. And <laughs> you, were, you were talking about, here's another thing. The, the, when, when you look at, you know, so Delaware, uh, three counties in Delaware. Newcastle, Kent, and Sussex, and below the canal, the southern part that David was referring to, uh, Lower Delaware, as it would be called, but derogatively by the by the elites of the northern part of the state in um, <laughs> Newcastle County, referred to as Slower Delaware, Slower Delaware, and they still they still, still do. do yes. So even even in in state now, here's one thing about Delaware. A serious side that we should think about to wrap up. And there is a tradition in Delaware the day after the election, and it's called Return Day. Yeah. And what happens in Return Day? Well, the candidates, the winner and the loser, they do a parade. I think it's in Dover. And they sit together in the backs of convertibles, waving to any assembled citizens a victor and a defeated opponent accepting the results of an election, saying now it's time to move on to do the work of the people until the people speak next. That's what makes it such a great country. And that is an amazing tradition that takes place in Delaware. And you think about all of the poison in our politics, that tradition endures. And the first state, I think, offers us something to get a toehold in. There's nothing else in this country if we can't make elections work and we don't get to pick our leaders. We lose everything else. So we should think about that. And everyone listening, look up Return Day. It's a great, great tradition. Return Day. It's if, if I recall, it's in it's in Georgetown, Steve. So just yep, south of Georgetown. Yep. But yeah, the, the candidates go down. I you know I ran a Senate race in 1994 against Bill Roth. We lost. And so, you know, my candidate had to go down there. And, you know, you ride around in like an antique car or horse carriage, I can't remember. And there's like a burying of the hatchet that the candidates and party officials do sort of formally to, you know, illustrate it. It's a good tradition. You know, the other thing I'd say about Delaware, so you mentioned, so the nice thing about Delaware, of course, everybody makes fun of that small stretch of I-95 you have to pay tax the toll on between Jersey and Maryland. But you can get off and go to Capriati's easily. The other thing you can do, which is actually the first place Steve and I really had our first conversation post-2008 to speak of good culinary moments in Delaware, the Deer Park Tavern. It's like 10 minutes off I-95 on the campus of the University of Delaware. It's still there. It was there when Steve and I went to college a long time ago. 
And they have lots of beers. Steve and I had quite a few th- that night when we were talking about what happened in a week. But they have amazing nachos. And it's the Deer Park Tavern is a place that Edgar Allan Poe used to uh, spend some nights on when he was traveling to and fro. And so it's also got some history. So if you're looking for a, an hour or two of things to do as you're driving north to south or south to north, you can go get a Bobby of Capriati's and maybe a, a pint and, and some nachos at the Deer Park. So I think we've exhausted our Delaware culinary references. You just turn up the radio and jam out to some George Thorogood and the Delaware Destroyers, <laughs> which I think is I think they're going to make a big comeback in the Biden era. I think it'll be the voice of the Biden generation, probably. Best music to shoot pool to, I think. Absolutely. The Allman Brothers are great, too, but George Thorogood and the Destroyers, for sure. Absolutely. The house band at the Stone Balloon, I think, which is no longer there, unfortunately. Tragically no longer there. By the way, do you watch The Crown? I don't. I need to. So there's a scene. You have to watch this. It may be like one of the greatest scripted scenes like I've ever seen on any program ever. Is this the recent season with Diana? Yes. Uh-huh. And it's with Margaret Thatcher and the Queen. <laughs> and and Margaret Thatcher has fired her captain after spending a weekend doing all this upper class stuff in Scotland and Balmoral where she's totally out of place with the royal family. And she goes to see the Queen. And the queen says to her, you know, I can't understand people who don't feel at home at Balmoral, right? And she goes to Margaret Thatcher, there's been, I see there's been some political bloodletting at home. You know, you've sacked these older male guys. And Thatcher says to her, yes. Yes, although it it wasn't wasn't just just their their age age that decided it. Rather, it was their lack lack of of grit. grit. As a consequence of their privilege and entitlement. Right? It's one of the greatest shows ever. It's incredible. You have to watch this. I want to thank all of our listeners for the great questions and also for tuning in each week. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed the episode, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Allie Rogers is our associate producer. And Christian Castro-Wassell is our executive producer.